Thank you so much for tuning in to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. As always, I want to I wanna hear from all of our listeners. I want to hear what you think of this episode. I want to hear who you want to hear from and how we can just get better at offering you outstanding ways to become better sports PTs. Reach us at True Sports PT on Instagram is the quickest way to drop us a line. Also, we are growing like wildfire and we're looking for awesome sports PTs to join us. If you're motivated to provide the very best to your athlete that's standing in front of you, you want to be doing it at True Sports. We have one-on-one care for 45 minutes every single time in state-of-the-art facilities with room to run, throw, jump, everything your athlete needs to get better. So shoot us, shoot us a DM at True Sports PT on Instagram. This conversation with Dr. Dylan Caswell really taught me a lot. It teaches me how we can get better at being sports PTs, which is what this pod is all about. He does a great job of highlighting the five mistakes that he sees sports PTs making, but also really gives us feedback and a guide to get better and correct all of those mistakes. And he does so from really a place of humility. I enjoyed the conversation greatly. I hope you will too. He teaches us how to be better sports PTs and really how to be better people. We've got Dylan Caswell with us to really enlighten us on all things sports rehab. Dylan's one of the prehab guys, which is just absolutely taking over the internet or has taken over the internet. I'm excited to learn about what it is that the prehab guys are and, and what they stand for and also about Dylan yourself. So let's start there. Dylan, tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, well, thank you for reaching out and having us come on the show. We're, we're excited to to just chat and, and get more information out there. So so thank you for that. So I'm a doctor of physical therapy. I'm in Syracuse, New York. And, you know, I, I remember being in PT school and I remember sitting there through some of these courses and I'm sitting there. I'm like, I want to be a sports PT. I don't want to do this bioscience stuff like neuro is really confusing. I don't want to do neuro. And I remember my neuro professor going, every patient's a neuro patient, whether you work in ortho and sports, it's all neuro. And at the time I was like, okay, whatever. So I started practicing, you know, going on a clinical rotations. And I remember just being pretty burnt out from the PT field. And, and I'm sure you can attest to this, that you get out there in the field and you just see how reactive the care is. And that a lot of clinics are just, you know, not really treating people as people, they're treating them as their injured body area. And I was just really kind of burnt out from it to the point that I was like, do I really want to finish my doctorate in this? Or, or do I just want to go like be a strength and conditioning coach or a CrossFit coach? Cause it seemed more fulfilling and I didn't have to deal with like this sick healthcare system that, that we were being confronted with. Sure. So I remember we're picking our clinic rotations. I'm in like my second year of PT school. And one of our professors goes, all right guys, there's this clinic. It's different. And I just remember being like, awesome, sign me up. Like different is what I need in this case, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember walking into this clinic and it was Goldwyn and Boylan that, that David Boylan owned. And I walked in and I was like, man, I don't know if this person's here because they hurt their knee, their ankle, their shoulder because of the movements that were being done and how people were being cared for. And I was like, wow, this is it. Like, this is incredible. So from that experience, I got to learn how do we treat people as human beings as individuals, not as a body part that's injured. Like, how do we take care of this person that's in front of us? And it was phenomenal, great mentorship. Went on to get my SCS, um, started teaching um, at the university. And then in 2020, right, I, I kind of put all my eggs into the sports therapy bucket, COVID happened. So my whole schedule is gone. Like yeah. the athletes I was working with, they're like, I got some off time. I'm not going to keep training. Like I'm going to, cause we thought it was going to be like two to three months. So everyone was just like, eh, I'll just take time down, like some downtime. So I'm sitting there and for the first time I, I had time to, to think and reflect on what is my mission? Like, what is it that I want to do as a healthcare provider? What's the message I want to spread to people at the time, the prehab guys were looking for content creators and it was just perfect timing that I, I linked up with them and came on as a content creator. And, you know, I was, I started off writing articles, creating content, and then that led into me hosting our podcast, the prehab audio experience. And so now I do that. That's my main role is hosting that. And then I also create all of our programs that, that we have that are available um, on our new app. So it's been an awesome, awesome journey so far. And I always tell people that, 
you know, you might have a plan A, but there's a plan C that's probably better for you than that plan A that you had. Cause I was like, I'm going to work in the NFL. I'm going to be an NFL physical therapist. And, and I look back and I'm like, man, luckily that didn't work out because now I get to be in this position where I have some more flexibility and freedom and can really pursue my, my personal mission along with the prehab guys mission. That's, that's really awesome. And it's a great story. You're absolutely right. A lot of times that NFL life or pro sports life is glamorized and um, God knows it's oftentimes a mess. So I I think you might be right in terms of dodging that bullet. But um, what I also heard was you taking a minute and having time to understand where you are and what your options are. That's what I love about what we're doing here, what this conversation is. There's so many opportunities for one to take, so many paths one can go down with this doctorate. You could yeah. do a million things, right? Um, but you taking the time to figure out, am I happy where I'm going? Uh, am I happy where I am? How do I, how do I problem solve? Um, that, that, that's a really an awesome lesson. And so you've got the prehab guys that, that you're creating content, you're doing the podcast, but you're also treating, right? Yeah. Yep. So tell me about that world. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point that, you know, that, that time to think that a lot of times we equate busyness to fulfillment. And and that's not the case. You know, at that point in my life, I was working 70, 80 hours a week, super busy, which was great. I got a lot of reps in a lot of experience, a lot of networking, but I was not fulfilled. So, so taking that time, any provider that's listening, that's feeling really burnt out, take that step back and just evaluate and see how am I feeling? What is it that I want to pursue? Am I, am I on that path? But, but to your question, I'm still treating at, with my own company where I'm, where I'm at in Syracuse, New York. And, uh, there's a few reasons why, why I've, I've continued to do that. Um, one, I opened up my own company just to have flexibility. Like it was a necessity of flexibility with traveling out to LA and some other locations that it's easier for me to have my own company and I can talk to myself to see, okay, do I need, can I take that time off to go out here and to have my own patient schedule that I can switch to virtual, to in-person, to their house, to mobile, and, and have that flexibility without having this hierarchy of, of things that, that need to be like paperwork filled out to go out to a certain place. But the other reason that I, I continue to treat within my own company is that I love treating people and they give me the inspiration to then create programs. And, and a good example of this is this past weekend, you know, I, I traditionally work in, in rugby and hockey and football. And this past weekend, I had an opportunity to work with performing artists, the, the group of Anastasia that was coming through um, Syracuse at the Landmark Theater. So I, I took on this opportunity as just, wow, this is a great learning experience. It's a population I don't normally work with. Like, what are the similarities between performing artists and rugby, hockey, football? And, and the, the fun part about it is after that, like now I get to come home and I get to think about, oh, wow, we can create a whole new program on the app specific to performing artists. And I now have an idea of what their lifestyle is like because I've worked with that population versus trying to guess it. So a lot of people always ask me, where does the inspiration come for these workouts or for these programs? And it comes from the people that, that you work with and getting reps in and, and recognizing patterns and then programming for those patterns. That's, that's awesome. You seem like a truly introspective individual where you're, you're consistently kind of analyzing where you are and what you can gain from whatever's in front of you. Uh, that's a great quality. That's a quality that'll serve anyone well, really in any profession. Yeah. I've seen it work beautifully in physical therapy, right? I, I've seen those new graduates come out and say, hey, I want to do sports. They get into a true sports clinic um, and maybe it's not what they thought it was but how introspective can you be how can we be a teammate to you as an employer how can you be a teammate to us as an employee to create a teamwork to say all right how do we set you up for success you know what do you want to do um and you have to be able to answer that what do you want to do and what's your ideal workplace um it sounds like uh you're really good at that um so that's awesome that's awesome that you kind of are able to keep but juggling both in the air and, and they really complement each other beautifully. Tell me about prehab guys. If you had to sum up who they are and what you guys do. Yeah, for sure. So it, it all started back in 2016 with Mike, Arash and Craig, and they were actually students at the time. So it was pretty funny through, <laughs> through undergrad. I never had social media. Like at that time it was probably more like MySpace. Facebook was like up and coming. People were getting on Instagram and I, I never had social media because I thought it was pretty funny because it bugged my family and friends that they couldn't keep up with what I was doing unless they called me. Mm-hmm. 
I, I thought that was hilarious. So I'm like, I'm not making social media because I want you guys to call me so I can like update you with what's happening. But in the time I'm in PT school, the guys are in PT school at USC and it all started at USC's basement where the guys had gotten back from clinic and they were like seeing this reactive healthcare system and just had this thought of why don't we be the change? Why don't we be the change that we're talking about? Like we're, we're sitting here talking about how the healthcare system's failing people and how a lot of these injuries that we're seeing don't need to be treated because people can do this on their own. So how do we start doing that? How do we give control back to people? How do we give them the right information at the right time? So that was the early beginnings of it. And I remember I'm in PT school at Upstate Medical University and one of my best buddies, Tommy, he's on Instagram and he shows me the prehab guy's account. And he's like, dude, you should get Instagram just to follow these guys because look at the stuff they're posting and they're, they're right around our same age. Like this stuff is cool. You should be following this. So that was actually the first time that I was introduced to, to the prehab guys. So it's cool to fast forward to 2023 or like each time that I get to go out there and hang out with them, it's just so cool to, that, that it all kind of worked out that way. That's really awesome. And, and how'd you, so how'd you get the gig? Yeah, I, I always say this to people, you know, never feel like you're too good to apply for, for something, right? Always humble yourself. So the, the position that they were hiring, they posted on Instagram and this position was basically, I assume you had Instagram at this point. I had Instagram okay. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so background story with that, uh, I, I was on the CrossFit medical team and I would go around to like the regional events and, and provide venue coverage for that. And when I first got accepted to it, I sent the director an email and, uh, he was like, dude, you gotta get Facebook. We communicate through Facebook. So I'm like, can you just shoot me an email? And he goes, get a Facebook account or you're off the team. So I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll get a Facebook account. So I got Facebook then. And I was like, might as well make an Instagram. I actually started enjoying it. I found that like social media, right? It's like, it, it can be very harmful or it can be very beneficial depending on how you're using it. And I just found that if, I, if I'm following the right things and I'm surrounding myself with the right things, that social media is super beneficial. You know, you can scroll through it you know, follow some good research, you get really good tips and, and things like that. So you can make it beneficial. Um, so, so that was good. So yeah, at this time, had Instagram, had social media, and, and they were looking for a position that they would basically film an exercise, and then you would type up the description for, for that exercise. So they're looking for like an undergrad kinesiology major. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna send in this application. I don't have any patients right now. I'm like, just chilling in my apartment, like I might as well be doing something productive. So I, I sent them the application and they were like, no, fill out this application. I'm like, okay, cool. So I fill out this next application. No idea what I'm applying for. Craig gets a hold of me. He goes, Hey, you want to hop on a call? Do you, do you like a zoom interview? I'm like, yeah, sure. Hop on the call. We go through the interview. We chatted for like an hour and a half. And we, we both were like, oh, Dan, we should probably get going. Cause I'm on the East coast. He's on the West coast. He's like, man, it's probably like midnight for you over there. I'm like, yeah. I should, I should probably get off the call. Great call. Got done with the call and I was still like, man, I don't even know what this position was, is for. Like, what am I applying for? Mm -hmm. So he shot me back the email, you know, a few days later and was like, Hey, content creator, um, would you want to come on as a content creator and start with articles? And then it kind of progressed from there, which, which was awesome. But it all started from applying to a position of like, yes, we, we have our doctorates and we have specializations and all these credentials, but it's always good to, to humble yourself and go, look, it doesn't mean that because I have this, uh, that I shouldn't be doing this other thing to serve people, you know? So it's like, I'm not quote unquote, too good to write an exercise description. Like this is serving more people than I'll be able to serve my clinic. Like, why would you not want to jump at that opportunity? Yeah. And then you start small and then it just kind of builds, builds from there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been awesome. And, and the company has really grown from, it started off as this, this content company, like let's get out as much education as we can, YouTube videos, Instagram posts, um, TikTok, Facebook articles, like you name it, this, this content, we were just pushing it out to give people as much education as we could. And then we brought in the exercise library, which was more meant for clinicians and providers that they, instead of writing out on this piece of paper, an HAP for somebody, they have the exercises that are being described ver both verbally and with audio and with the visual of the video. So you put it together, send it to your patients, and now they're more confident with their HAP. So then it grew into the exercise library. Mm -hmm. 
And as we, we kept going, we're, we're having a meeting a couple of years ago, reflecting on the mission of, are we giving people the opportunity to take control of their health? And what we realize is that, you know, posting a thing on Instagram or having an eight minute YouTube video, it's a great start, but it's not giving people the direction that they need. And people needed programming. They needed a four week or eight week or 12 week program, depending on the injury that they had that went through step-by-step step that if you have this, this is how you take care of it. Here's the movements we would do. Here's a recommended rep scheme and here's training support video. So it really grew into this thing that now allowed us to develop our own app in house that, that we just released last year, which we're really excited about because if people have an injury, they don't have to go immediately to get imaging done or to wait four weeks to get into a provider's office. Mm -hmm. They can download the app, look at where, where's my injury and, and the app will help put you into the program that's recommended for you. And you can get taken control of this thing with active solutions from the palm of your hand. So we're, we're really excited about that. We feel like, okay, we, we kind of have these three different streams that, that are going out. Like we're still pushing content. We have the exercise library, but, but now we have this thing that we truly believe is going to get us to achieving that, the mission that we're on. I love that. Um, one of the things I heard you hit on was like the founding of the prehab guys and the way these guys took a step back, kind of similar to what we were talking about previously, right? Taking a step back and assessing like, where are we? What's the problem we can solve? Yeah. And how the hell do we solve it? Right? Yeah. And they did a great job of that. It's, it's resonates with me. It sounds like something um, that I love because th that's kind of how I found my practice too. Eventually you get tired of learning what not to do. Right. Yeah. And, and you want to start learning what do I want? And that's what these pre the prehab guys did, right? What yeah. do they see as the best way to deliver our skill set? And you guys have come up with unbelievable ways to do it. Uh, it's really, it's yeah, it's really cool to see. Um, okay, so that dovetails beautifully, especially your social media piece, which is, I wanted to talk to you about the five biggest mistakes that PTs make in sports rehab today. Because there are millions of mistakes. <laughs> there are millions of awesome things. I guarantee you, just this morning, I saw a bunch of athletes. I guarantee you, I made some mistakes when I came <laughs> um, So, So uh, I don't pretend like I'm not making some of these mistakes. But let me ask you this. What is, let's, we'll, we'll trade back and forth. Let's start yeah. with you. The number one mistake you see sports PTs making today. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that point to start with of, we're not having this conversation to be on a pedestal and say that we're perfect PTs and that we don't make these mistakes because every mistake that we're going to talk about, we can guarantee that you and I have made these like Multiple routinely. Times. And yeah. it's like, you know, we're, we're never after perfection. We're after progress and purpose creates progress. So the more purposeful we are, then we can create progress and become better clinicians. So, so anyone listening, if you hear one of these mistakes and you're like, oh crap, I did that this morning. Like, don't beat yourself up from it, right? You, you're doing the best that you can with the knowledge you have at, at your hands. And, and now it's just, let's keep adding to that. So it's okay to look back and go, oh, I messed up, like, let me move forward. I remember when I first started practicing, I used to tell runners that they needed to contract their core when they were running. Love it. I, love I look it. back That's now and I'm like, dang, that is the stupidest cue I could have yeah. given these runners because now they're flexing down as hard as they can like trying to run, but their body's not even rotating side to side. So I look back at that. And I'm like, all right, hopefully those runners just started running and we're like, okay, no, that doesn't work. But you, you learn from that and then you move forward. So don't beat yourself up too bad if you've made any of these mistakes, because we've made mistakes and we're probably going to continue to make mistakes in the future. We'll look back 10 years from now and, and go, oh yeah, remember those five we talked about? I have five other ones or 15 or 20 other ones. You just, yeah. you keep learning. Or maybe they're not mistakes. Right, right. You know, maybe, maybe these aren't mistakes, but currently, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're talking to a dude who spent a long time just preaching, "Don't let your knees go forward. Yeah. Like, please sit back into." Okay. Today, <laughs> I look back. I'm like that guy was an idiot. But, <laughs> but now I'm learning, right? And and so the best, like you said, the best that we got for today. So go ahead with yep. the, with a dose of humility. What do you got? Yeah. So I, I think the first one is not getting enough information in the subjective history. Like for, first day that you're working with this patient or with this client, whether this is physical therapy, whether this is performance realm, whether it's a combo of both, but getting as much information as you can about the particular case. A quick example I can give of this is that it's very typical that someone would say, I work a lot in the CrossFit population. They'd say, I hurt my back deadlifting. 
And, and so we would go, okay, there's something with a hip hinge pattern. There's probably hamstring weakness. There's probably erector deconditioning. We just need to load these things up and get them back to it. Right. And Hey, if you're doing that, you're already ahead of the game. Like that, that's, that's great. But let's take it that next step further because it was a deadlift. Well, how much weight was on the bar, right? What was the workout? What was it coupled with? You know, what would, what did your warm up look like? Especially in a deadlift population, they probably didn't get hurt on the first rep. It was probably on the 55th or the 110th rep that it happened. And what was the workout? Was it a seven minute Metcon? Was it a 30 minute one that you were pacing it? But what were the demands of that activity surrounding it that then led to that injury? And then another thing with that is, well, what was your day like going into that workout? Did you wake up late, super stressed, didn't get your coffee, work didn't go well, everything gets pushed back. You go to the gym just to try to clear your head a little bit, but you're still carrying all these day stressors. That's going to change the way that you perform the activity. It's going to change the way that you move, right? So maybe it's not their form. Maybe it's not that they're weak. Maybe it's that they were too stressed out going into that week. So we have to ask all these questions, especially in that population, because then we can use that to reverse engineer. Like, okay, we don't just need to deadlift. I need you to deadlift 30 reps coupled with toes to bar, coupled with me maybe talking some trash to you to try to recreate that environment right. with music playing with a, with a friend going next to you. So the more information that we can get, I think we can start to understand injuries a little bit better. I love that. Uh, you're, you're describing having a reason for everything that we do. Yeah. And, and yep. assessing what we do. Are, are we doing ideally? Why did you just ask that question? Right. Why? Why am I going to ask you your pain score zero to ten? Because that's what they told me to do in, in university. Or right. am I getting somewhere? Right. Yep. That that. So that's super important. So every single question you have. This is the way I look at it. Correct me if I'm wrong. You have. Uh, uh, you know what joint that they're complaining about. Or you know what their complaint is. They're here's your list of things that could be causing those symptoms in your head that you could come up with. I'm sure you'll leave some things off. Every single thing you do in that evaluation, especially in the subjective, should help you either rule something in or rule something out. Can you cross it off the list or can you continue to include it and support it? And those are the questions that you're asking. The other thing you said, which I loved, is um, was this an AMRAP? Was this uh, EMOM? Was this, you know, what, what was the workout? What You're speaking their language. Yeah. And you're, you're, um, you're communicating with them. You're connecting with them. And... You're getting awesome information for a reason. It's not going to change my impact or my intervention, I should say, if they say 2 out of 10 versus 3 out of 10. It will change my intervention based upon where their pain occurred during that workout. So ask that question and stop wasting your time with the the pain scale. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. It's like we, we do the pain scale. It gives us some type of number. Most patients don't even want to truthfully answer it because they're like, what does this even mean? Like, what does this number even mean? And, and yeah, we, we tend to go through the motion of getting that number, but how oh, you said it so beautifully, why, what's our rationale of getting that number? Like, how does that guide our interventions? And so many times sports PTs, they just, they don't know where to start with an individual. Sure. And I always say, hey, if you're not, if you don't know where to start, start by getting more information that's going to guide you to what you should be doing. Like we have all these special tests that really aren't so special anymore with what we're learning. And really by the time that we get to that part of the assessment, we should already have a great idea of where we're going with this, right? The special test is there just to further rule in this hypothesis or because we want to rule out some other things just to get it off the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's something that I've come around on. You talk about mistakes that, that we've made very clearly, I would make a ton of mistakes with my special test placement and the ones I was choosing. And like, why am I doing that? Like I just memorized the algorithm, right? So it's not until you, you get good at connecting with the patient and coming up with your own, your own hypothesis, then you can support it. Right. Yeah. With, With those special tests. So that makes sense. One of the biggest mistakes I see, and this is why I'm so excited to have you on the pod is sports PTs coming out of graduate school and just living face down in social media and letting that dictate the way they treat. Here's the caveat, and you already hit this. You said um, there's so much good that can come of this given tool like social media. And I think that is a rule that applies to everything we do. You can use something to such outstanding benefit, it can also become a serious detriment. 
social media can be a massive detriment if you don't know how you're using the tools. You gotta, you can get great exercise ideas. You gotta have the background and the hunger to know when do you apply those. Now, Dylan, what do you say to that as a social media king? <laughs> yeah, I would say that I tend to, to teach other PTs that it's, it's not necessarily about the tool, it's how it's used, right? You can use a hammer to drive a nail and give a structure a ton of stability. At the same time, you can use a hammer to completely deconstruct an object. So it, like you said, it's, it's having that reference of when and why would I, would I be using this? And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's funny because Dan Lorenz is a PT that we look up to that has really brought strength and conditioning into PT and wrote, written a lot of great articles on this. But he always jokes around that he doesn't have a social media because the things that he posts would be so freaking boring that nobody would, would want to watch it. And, and we do have to remember that, that in the social media game, you're, a lot of people are going for clickbait. They're going for attractiveness. They're going for these things that are trying to draw you in. I, I don't want to call out accounts, but this one's like, I see it on sports center a few times that they show people at the bottom of the pool, holding their breath, doing a farmer carry and sprinting. It's very important. And I'm well, like, when the heck would we use that? <laughs> and like, why is this training like this hard? But it like, it makes you watch it because you haven't seen it before. So it has that surprise element, but wh why the heck would we be using that? Like, what's the point? Do a farmer carry on land. Like yeah. that's going to be way harder than doing it at a pool, holding your breath. That's impressive. Like credit, all credit there. But yeah, it's, it's making sure that we're, we're creating context around it. So like when we post, we try to put a lot of context to it that we're using this exercise. This is a condition in which we're using that exercise, but don't stop there. Go to the article that it's in, go to the podcast that it's in, go to the YouTube video that it's in. Shoot, send us emails with questions on it so that we can further guide you so that you know how to implement this thing versus just seeing a post and just going, oh yeah, I should give that a shot. Like context is everything. Context is, is everything for every patient that you're working with, everything that you're seeing posted there. It's, it's not, okay, yeah, I'm gonna use this. It's how am I gonna use this and why would I be using this? Yeah, and I think um, you bring up a really good point with that. I think it's such an awesome outlet. Social media is a huge benefit to our practice, to our profession, because it, it can spark great ideas and creativity. Yeah. I love the combination of, yeah, go to Instagram, look at these crazy exercises. I don't know about a farmer carry underwater, that makes no sense, but, <laughs> but find some useful exercises and then shoot over to PubMed. Yeah. Hey, does this, is there any evidence that an exercise like this would work for this outcome or whatever it is your, your goal that you're trying to achieve? So, um, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. okay. So you already shared your number one. Give me number two. Yeah. Number two, I think it, it goes back to number one. I think each point will probably go back to number one, but, but number two, it, it relates to that example that we we're giving of what's happening in that person's day. And we're going to sum this up is their internal load. So what is their internal load? External load is, is the work that you're performing, right? Whether it's a workout, whether it's a training session, internal load is in how your body adapts to it. Internal load is what makes you human, right? It's, it's your stressors, it's your sleep schedule, it's your relationships, all these things are impacted by that. So we, we tend to do pretty good at having these questions about external load, but we have to dive in deeper to internal load and make sure that we're not missing something. And another example I can provide here is that this will save someone six weeks of physical therapy if you're able to ask these questions and get down to it. But I was working with a police officer who had hurt her back. Mind you that she's carrying around a belt and wearing a vest day after day after day. Her core is not weak. She's not a weak person. Like she has built up capacity for these things. So I asked her, well, well how'd you hurt your back? Well, I was throwing a towel into my washer that mechanism of injury does not make sense that someone in this condition or in this shape, that that would create a biomechanical injury, right? So that kind of alerts you that something more is happening here. How'd you right? dig in there? This is a great example. How'd you dig in to find that out? What are those questions yeah. to measure it? Yeah, it, that's a great question because there, there's definitely, there needs to be a little bit of trust built before you just dive into it. You know, you're not, the person's not walking in the door and you're like, Hey, give me your deepest, darkest secrets that led up to this, this point, Bad but business. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. but you, you have to tease it out, right? So, okay, you hurt, you hurt your back. Let's do some objective testing. Let's do side plank endurance. Let's do a GHD um, isometric hold. Let me see you do a deadlift. How is this changing your, your pain response? Because if it's muscle or tendon, it's going to change either for the better or for the worse as we start loading it. 
So we start loading it and the patient starts realizing that, hey, nothing's changing. This, this is weird, right? It's like, yeah, you know, I kind of agree with you. There might be something more that's happening here. You know, when we have pain, it may not just be due to symptoms in a tissue. Like a pain response, this is a threat to losing meaningful activity. What threat do you think that you're potentially losing if you feel comfortable to share that, right? So then that usually opens it up that they're like, well, you know what? The, something did happen in, in my life. And for this potential person, they, they were starting to go through a divorce when, when they were throwing that towel in there. So, okay, now instead of doing the six weeks of loading to make sure that her back is strong and coat, her core strong, she's able to realize that and go, oh, I just need to do some, really some self-love mm -hmm. to get myself feeling good and, and to de-stress a little bit. Maybe I need to go on a week vacation. Maybe I need to not take as many overtime hours. Maybe I'm filling the, this emotional thing that's going on with me with more work and more busyness. So it led to that, which was, was two sessions instead of this six-week thing. And Dr. Tim Gabbett, who has become a really great mentor, you know, I was at his course and he said, if we can't have the difficult conversations, why have the easy ones? And I really took that to heart, especially in sports PT. Like you got to have the difficult conversations and, and be ready for these things. And I think the research is showing more and more that internal load, like I, I haven't worked with an athlete that was, was having the best time of their life. They didn't have stress and then they had an injury. Like there, there's always a life event or stressor that's preceding that injury happening. So we, we have to do our due diligence to understand that and, and help guide them through that. I mean, you're bringing, you're bringing pain science to the forefront, right? Mm -hmm. And merging that with our sports model, the way, the way it's usually termed or coined. And it's funny because you said you're not a neuro guy, but, but uh, there's, I love that you're bringing from so many different disciplines to your athlete. Remember, the athlete in front of you, we make a mistake. This is not on my list, but it should be. We make a mistake of saying this is just an athlete. All he has to do is take this ball and run 10 yards and, and cut and move. No, he's got to live. He's got he's to think. He's got to feel. Yes, he has to have the physical capacity. There's so much more mm -hmm. that we're treating. Why are you just telling me this, Dylan? I could have used this knowledge. <laughs> years ago and that's why we're sharing it with everyone out there um but really powerful stuff um i i, I want to change gears a little bit with with my number two because in my current role as ceo of true sports i'm doing a lot of hiring a lot of training a lot of treating um but i get to hear the stories of the pts that's what inspired me to really start a podcast like this so that i could speak to those sports pts and hear from those sports pts so DM us at Sports PT. There you go. Um, but, but what I hear, because I, I have a lot of financial conversations with with our PTs, is these loans. Mm. I think a massive problem with our profession, the way we feel that we need. I mean, the trickle down effect, the way we feel like we how we need to treat, the way we feel like how we have to earn, is a direct effect by how much these schools cost to get your doctorate so it just breaks my heart when i hear about these massive loans that pts have taken are taking or considering taking to get through maybe a private school education or a more expensive state school i think that's a massive mistake i don't i really this one i don't think in 10 years i'm going to look back and say i was wrong about <laughs> but you, tell me if i'm wrong about this Dan. I, I don't think you're wrong about about that at all and it's the, the reimbursement rate once you're out compared to how much you're paying it doesn't match up so it's it puts like you're graduating with all this debt you're already at a disadvantage and the biggest thing i would say is just you got to have a strategy you either need to have the strategy of i'm paying this thing off as soon as i can and i'm going to work you know, like a lot of hours to be able to do that or I'm just gonna go long-term with this thing and, and pay the minimum and then have it be forgiven in 20, 30, 40 years or whenever that may be. But you, you gotta have a strategy and you have to do the strategy that's gonna create the most peace and most comfort in your life that you don't have this weight on your shoulders all the time of this thing happening because it might prevent people from wanting to start a business because they have to take out another loan, but they're like, their passion and their deep desire is to do that. And, and I would say that if that is your deep passion and desire and you have good mentorship, don't let the loans scare you, you know, do, do what you want to do and become fulfilled because when that happens, the revenue stream will, will follow it. Yeah. And I, 
I should thank you and prehab guys as an example for now there's so many ways to earn when you yeah. come out as a PT, right? It used to be you just treat patients. Um, if you can get creative about it um, and, and have a plan, have a strategy, then maybe it makes sense to take that big loan. Taking a step back, you mentioned yeah. that earlier, right? Assessing where you are, what you want to do, putting together a plan makes a lot of sense when looking at some of those private schools. I think that's how you you fix it. Yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't think until we're actually talking now about that trickle down effect of owing so much money, and how it can fuel bad care. Yeah, how it can make you make a clinical decision. I don't know if the clinical decision, but a professional decision say, hey, I'm going to work in this clinic that's going to pay me more, and they treat a million patients an hour. How many people are affected by the fact that you have a massive loan at home? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I see this all the time with, with new grad PTs that they're all going into traveling PT, which, which isn't a bad thing by any means. But the reality is that when you're a new grad going into travel PT, you're typically going to a location that other people didn't want to go to. You're typically going to clinics that people didn't want to go to where you're not getting great mentorship and your first few years out of school, you know, when, when you graduate, you're, you have the, the bare minimums to not harm anybody, but you need mentorship to get to that next level, to know, how do I care for this person? How do I recognize patterns? What should I be using? And that mentorship, the first few years out of school is, is so important really at any point, but those first few years, it's critical, but I see so many young PTs that are going right into travel PT because they're getting paid more and they can start chipping away at the loan debt, but then they're hurting their career in the long run because they're not getting good mentorship. Yeah, and, and maybe a strategy there is, I mean, we've implemented a, a really nice bonus structure within True Sports to say, if, if you want this and, and you wanna make some more money, great, here's how you do it. If not, cool, here's how you take another path, but, but also, how do you become a content creator, right? How do you generate revenue on your, how do you figure out, hey, I'm gonna do some home care on the weekends so I can right. treat sports during the week. There's so many ways, like we said earlier. Yeah. 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 There's so many options. There's so many options out there. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be a PT. It really is. I really, it was just before I got out of grad school, but I remember clearly the old ultrasound stim evaluate and treat, and that's on a doctor's script. And if it didn't say yeah. that, then you weren't getting it. And so like, yeah. man, how far have we come? that you're sitting, like you can create revenue as a PT from your house. It's nuts. Right. It's right. awesome. Um, okay, give me another one. Yeah, so next one I, I would go into. So we talked about external load and internal load, but, but shifting back to the external load, I think another critical mistake is underloading in rehab. And shout out to the strength and conditioning coaches out there because a lot of times they end up picking up our slack of we have deconditioned the athlete and then they're cleared to go back into their sport. And the strength and conditioning coach is like, well, okay, I know you're rehabbing your knee, but your capacity sucks now. Your overall strength has gone down. I think it's on us as rehab professionals that you can get creative with this, right? Like you have someone that's post-op ACL, maybe it's the first few weeks where we're hammering knee extension, we're trying to get quad activation going again. There's no reason that we can't superset that with like an upper body cycle where they're sprinting, getting their heart rate up, getting lactic acid floating around. Now let's go with knee, knee extension during your rest break. But it's one of my biggest pet peeves is that we let athletes become deconditioned during the rehab process. We got to keep them going. We got we to gotta have fun with it. So sometimes I'll have athletes bring in game film. And if they're on the bike, it's not just pedal around for 10 minutes, get your legs warm. It's I want you to watch you play your, your sport. When you sprint in your sport, I want you sprinting on your bike. When you're jogging in your sport, I want you to jog on the bike. But let's cue it to something to keep you conditioned through this rehab process. And then there's the conditioning of that actual area. And sticking with the ACL example, quads are so under underloaded like th this area that we're treating we need to keep loading it progressive overload and get it strong we need to get it stronger than what it was before and we can't compare it to the other side if you're not training the other side because now we just have two weak sides and now you have increased risk for injury yep. so that one side that's the uninvolved side keep loading it keep getting it strong the involved side push that one further to get to there as long as the person is tolerating it, but we have to do a better job of loading our patients that we're working with. Yeah, no, no question. I love your example of, um, it's almost like a systemic load, right? Where, yeah. where if you can't load that exact joint, let's put some type of load through the entire system 
to create that hormonal response, to create that systemic response, to encourage growth. The body forgets really quickly how to produce mass, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think, I think you're right. Really good strength coaches are awesome at that. We need to do a better job as PTs to, to uphold our end of the bargain, right? We should be 100%. awesome, awesome strength coaches ourselves if, if yeah. you're treating athletes. So um, that's, that's a really great point. That's something that I totally, totally agree with. And I think it's what separates, I'd say, sports PTs from PTs. I think mm -hmm. I would go that far just in terms of the way it, the current construct is. Um, if you want to be a great sports PT, you better be great at loading an athlete in all the different yeah. angles. Yeah. And I, go, go shadow strength and conditioning coaches, go learn from strength and conditioning coaches. This is a field that's been loading people for way longer than PTs have. Sure. So go, go learn from them. Don't be embarrassed. Don't again, like humble yourselves of like, yeah, I have my doctorate, but most of the time you graduate PT school and you have no understanding of how to load somebody physiologically. So go learn from the people that are doing this and create those relationships where it's a better pass off of, of like, Hey, we got the rehab done. Now the strength and conditioning coach, they're going to take you the rest of the way and get you back into that game ready shape. And the strength and conditioning coach is going to be praising you. Oh, thank you. I can yeah. focus on this and not have to worry too much about this injured area. Like, like I used to have to. So definitely collaborate more as much as you can. Yeah, I think that's it's awesome to highlight that on that end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is get your ass into an OR, right? Like yeah. find a doc, go go into clinic with a doc, learn that side so that we now we're an awesome go between, right? Now we're taking right. you from clinical on the OR table, let's say operating table, all the way to the weight bench. That's right. that's magic. So yeah. um I think that that'd be totally worthwhile. Um talk to me about another big mistake that you see sports PTs making. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll go off of that point of, of what you just mentioned, more collaboration. There's this weird turf war with athletic trainers and, and PTs. I, I've been blessed in the sense that the athletic trainers that I was working with when I was doing my SCS, they were phenomenal. They were so welcoming. And honestly, I was a little nervous because I knew this turf war that was going on. And I was like, I don't want to step on toes. I just want to be here to learn. But you have to understand that there's things that athletic trainers do that are better than what sports PTs do. And there's things that sports PTs do that are better than what athletic trainers do. And one of those things is, is evaluations, like quick evaluations. Sometimes in PT, we complain that we have 30 minutes to do an evaluation. Luckily, like a cash bag, I get to do an hour and I'm sure you have a setup where you get a little bit more time with people. But sometimes it's like, oh, I only have 30 minutes to do this evaluation. Well, imagine having 30 seconds to do an evaluation with 50,000 people watching you and this million dollar person is relying on your assessment to know if they can keep doing this thing that provides their income or not. So their ability to make these quick decisions in pressure circumstances, we don't get that in PT school. You don't get that from shadowing. So we, when I teamed up with the athletic trainer, I'd go out on the field, but I was just shadowing and just in awe of how quick their decision-making is and how they get to these answers. But once the athletic trainer was like, this isn't an emergency, let's go ahead and get off to the sidelines, then she would pass the athlete off to me. I would go into some treatment and return to sport to see if this person's ready to go back into the game. So now she's back, eyes on field, as I'm doing a quick rehab with this person. It was a, it was a great system. You know, We both knew each other's strengths, our weaknesses, and we combined to ultimately give the athlete and to give the team a better experience and that's what it's about so i think we need to stop these turf wars and we just need to come together more and more like you said this full line of care like when that happens it's magical like athletes are better taken care of teams are happier you're happier as a provider it's it's that's the model that's the model that we need to get after yeah and it comes from humility right like yeah. how do you tear down silos it, it comes from humility knowing exactly what you just said that there is an every single at out there knows something different than mm -hmm. you know um, and, and their skill set is simply different. The same thing, by the way, goes for chiropractic. I, yeah. I mean, you know, if I had a, uh, there are great chiros out there that are unbelievable with their hands and are incredible at di diagnosing. And they're also, some of them are awesome at the rehab side of things and the loading side of things. But we have to be able to have that conversation. Right? Yeah. We have to be able to talk, talk that language and discern, hey, who's in it for the patient? That's what it's about. Who's in it for the athlete that's in front of you? Yeah. Um, 
I, I think that's, that's really well made. Uh, one of the things when we talk about humility um, is leads to me to think about a, another one of the mistakes that I see sports PTs making and that I've definitely made myself is preparation for a given session. Yeah. I don't care how long you've been a sports PT. You need to prepare for the session that is about to happen. Here's why. We went to school to help people. You want to help people at, to the best of your ability, it will take preparation. The session will be better if you prepare. I don't need you to write out the note beforehand. I don't need you to spend hours doing it. I just need you to think about the patient before the door swings open yeah. and they walk in. Um, I, I you, you talk about like um, getting your ass handed to you. Didn't you? Did you mention that? I don't know. <laughs> but um, when you talk about like being humbled, um, when I walked back into an athletic training room to work as a sports PT very recently in my career. I've been a sports PT for 10, 12 years already, and then I'm, I'm tasked with treating Division I athletes on the 15 or when they're available, right? right? So it's like they'll have three – it's athletic trainer. It's just a different model. You bet your ass the night before I am just prepping for – who could walk in? How could they walk in? Where are we? What they do last time they were in, et cetera. Yeah. You got to prepare um, is, is one of my pet peeves and, and something that I, I love to, to kind of share and harp on. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, a couple of points in there. One, the, the respect of athletic trainers in high school and school settings, because that last school bell rings. And they have 50 to 100 athletes running into the training room. Yeah. So now not only do they have to be prepared, but they have to kind of shift through of who actually needs a treatment and, and who can they send out. So that like PT, sometimes we get frustrated if, if we have three patients at one time. Yep. But you see the athletic trainers and what they're able to do with, with that, and, and, and it's incredible. But, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree of, of the prep work because when we go back to why is this person having a pain response? It's, it's a threat to losing a meaningful activity and the uncertainty that's surrounding it. So if they come in and they're uncertain about, am I going to get back to this thing? And we're supposed to be the person guiding them. Like we're not fixing people. We're just guiding them to get to that next step. But if we come in and we're fumbling through our program, we're not really sure where they're going to be at or what movements they should be doing. We're now feeding into that uncertainty loop. And now their brain is predicting that, okay, I should be uncertain because the person guiding me is uncertain. Mm. So we need to be better prepped to be confident in what we're delivering because their system, their movement system is going to pick that up. And that's going to be the, can they express their movements by the confidence that you're giving them because you do have that plan prepped. So I absolutely agree that you'd have to prep. And like I said, it's not writing out your entire note beforehand, but it's where's this person at and what's the next progression that we need to do to get to the goals that we have. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that helped me um, as a, when, I, when I was just younger in my career was just coming up with options, right? Yeah. Like I want to do fill in the blank. Um, they're a couple months out of ACL. I want to do Bulgarian split squats. Well, if I do Bulgarian split squats and their rear foot is the affected limb and it hurts their patellar tendon graft site, right? What am I going to do? How am I going to work around it? Well, I might do this. I might do that. Um, I might go from something from a banded uh, rear foot to a solid back foot. I might shift the load anteriorly. I might add a band to pour whatever, but at least I have three options. Yeah. Right. To, yeah. to just think about where to go. So, yeah, for sure. um, you know, maybe that's like a, a nugget you can kind of take with you. Tell me where you are. Cause wh what I have listed next is modalities. <laughs> Passive modalities. This is before your time, Dylan. But there used to be a time when we used to have <laughs> passive modalities in the sports PT clinic. Tell me where your head is on those things. And I'm including electric stim, ultrasound, hot packs, cold packs. Mm. Yeah. So where, where my head at is with those is that I, I don't use any of them. Um, it it kind of goes against my values, my belief system. And, and really what, what we're doing with prehab is we really want to empower people like our bodies have incredible healing capabilities to the point we were doing a podcast with McHughes and we we're talking about some newer research showing that in a small percentage of the population that the ACL can actually heal on its own spontaneously. Like this thing that we used to think had no blood supply, had no healing capabilities, actually showing that it can heal itself. So now we move away from that and we go into tendons and muscle strains or, or non-specific low back pain in these things. And, and I really want to empower people that, their body was designed to heal and that it can heal. We just need to figure out how to get them to that point. 
And by relying on things that, that are passive, one, the evidence doesn't support that. And, and two, we're not giving them control. And, and three, okay, if you want to use a hot pack or an ice pack or these things, you can go use that at home. But like, if you're coming in and paying for a session, let me give you the things to teach you of how you can take control of the self to, to get long-term outcomes. I know the arguments might be made sometimes, well, I need something short-term to open that window of opportunity to then get into loading. Well, there's a lot of evidence showing that isometrics are a great, great way to do that, right? We don't need to do eight minutes of pulse ultrasound with a heat pack and then tens and then get this thing moving. Like, let's get it moving right away. Because I think what that tells the person too that's coming in is that this is what's fixing me. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff is just to check the boxes mm-hmm. where we're like, no, let's change that narrative. Let's let's. So I actually started my career as a physical therapist assistant and in PTA school, that's what we learned, man. It was modalities. Like every week we had a modality checkoff. I was so sold on modalities. I actually remember this one time, the PTA I was working with, we had two cases of plantar fasciitis that were right next to each other. And he got ultrasound going on one side and then he started the machine on the other side. So I was doing ultrasound on, on two different feet. But, and I'm like, I'm the best PTA in the world. I'm healing both feet at the same time. And uh, I was in PT school. I was, I was a PTA. And we went through modalities. And like, hey, you can turn the machine on or leave it off and get the same exact response. I'm sitting there in the back like, oh, so smart. what was I doing? You know, I was like, oh, to, to the point that I, I actually stepped away from that clinic and started coaching CrossFit because I was just like, oh, this isn't how I want to be working with people. Like I need to learn more about movement, more about loading and less about modalities. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on where you're at with modalities. Lock and step with you. Um, our clinics do not have ultrasounds. They don't have hot packs. They don't, I don't have a freezer in most of my <laughs> clinics. So um, yeah, I'm out on them. It's all about movement. Now, um, the, the interesting part is where manual therapy fits into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you talk about things that I've changed my tune on is uh, sacroiliac joint dysfunction, right? Like mm-hmm. I came out of graduate school and I was taught by an absolute witch doctor. And I mean that in the <laughs> highest praise, like the guy was a freaking magician, but he was obsessed with sacroiliac joint dysfunction, our ability mm-hmm. to assess it with our God-given thumbs and uh, how reproducible that was and how valid that was. And that's what I did. And, and, you know, I I treated like that until I started taking a ton of manual therapy education. And I'm like, wait a minute, like, can we go over that like literature again (laughs) on our ability to actually assess the sacroiliac joint? And I say all that to say, I, those patients got better with me, right? Like when I was, when I was treating the SI dysfunction. So what was it that I was doing that was making them better? And how do I double down on that stuff versus like cut some of the fat? So that's really passively. Um, I'm, I'm a needler. Uh, I'm a dry needler. It's like a tool that you got to be really strategic as to how you use it. And I think you use it differently based upon how the patient is presenting and, and some of the research that you've done on your own to get a gauge of how well is this patient going to do with this type of needling or that type of needling. Um, I'll use some Russian e-stim, like that's what we use our, um, any type of electric stim that's sitting around. And that's really it. Like grass thin is the same as my thumbs in my thought process. And it's gonna prep tissue maybe, but I wanna get away from that because of exactly what you said. Now, what a challenge for me is, and I'm interested in your take, when I have the patient come in and say, hey, I feel better when we do the massage. So can we start with massage? Dylan, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's a good point because there is evidence with manual therapy in short term of how it can create these effects, right? Hold on, another one then. If that's the case, let me give you another one. Yeah, yeah. Can we we start on a hot pack? I just want to start on a hot pack. Yeah, so it comes down to what's their belief system with the hot pack. What was their previous history of that injury? And maybe was they were told before that you need a hot pack. Maybe a provider told them that you hurt your back, so put a hot pack on it. So that's been their belief system for the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, a good example of this is the Rice Principle, right? Rest, ice, compress, and elevate. Robert Merkin coined this in 1978. Fast forward to 2010, and he's saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing this anymore. Because if you follow the evidence, I love it. yeah, he's like, if you follow the evidence, you'd see that this wasn't complete. Like this, this is not the answer. 
there's some evidence showing it may delay the healing process, but at the same time, you watch movies and an athlete gets hurt, they're throwing an ice pack on it, right? So there's so many things that need to change that I completely understand why people would come in and say, I need a heat pack or I need an ice pack or I need uh, a, a massage done because of the belief system that has been established with that. So I always take it as, are they open to have the conversation on maybe changing their belief system and, and going away from that? And it, it's always a really fun one to do because a lot of times we'll, we'll see people with like osteoarthritis, right? This, this term that, that's just thrown out there a lot. And they'll be saying, well, I use like a joint rub, like Bengay or Tiger Bomb, and it makes my joint feel better. And I'm like, oh, cool. And like, maybe your joint just needs to become hydrated. Let's just dump some water on your knee. And they like, they go, huh? And I'm like, right. Like this stimulus is not reaching down to your joint to change the perception. There's an input in your environment that then changes your brain's output. Like that's what's happening. So what if we change that input to something different? What if we change that input to movement? Because, you know, you can do movement wherever you're at. You might forget that tube of Bengay one day and your knee pain is, is flaring up. Well, let's give you a strategy that you can use for this because ultimately the same, it's the same thing with movement. Movement's an input that changes your output. It's just that movement can be completed almost anywhere that you are. There might be some places, like if you're stuck on a plane in the middle row, may, maybe not, but most places you can, you can do movement. Yeah, that, that's, that's so educational. That's, that's really an interesting way to put it. Um, thanks for sharing that. So yeah. at, as, we, as we wind down, I wanna know, you, you seem like a guy at the forefront of our field. Um, you've done an awesome job of changing the way and allowing the way you think about patients and pathology and treatment to evolve. Um, that has is is clear and evident. What are you super excited about that you're working on that you think could push this field even further? Yeah, I'm I'm so excited, but that always comes with a with a dose of nervousness. But um, the past three years, I've been working on this project, and it ended up becoming a book. At, at first, it was just my journal; it was my outlet um, from how people were being mistreated. There's so much narrative that of people being told that they're fragile, that they're broken that they can't do this activity again. And we've just learned so much more. Like we're choking around the beginning of uh, every patient's a neuro patient. And I've really taken that to heart. Like I, I've dove in so much further into neuro than, than orthopedic stuff because neuro, it tells us people's experiences. It tells us why they behave. And when I started working, I just, I got so angry at people suffering for, for long durations. And, and my personal mission became at first to, I'm gonna get rid of suffering. And one of my colleagues challenged me and was like, that's pretty stupid. Like we need suffering. And, and I've come to realize we do, we, we need suffering because if we don't have suffering, we won't experience full joy. But what I want to change is the duration that we have of that suffering. And, and from that, it led into this book that's called hope, not nope, reclaiming identity as a lifelong athlete in a sick healthcare system. And it, it's hopefully going to be published here in quarter one of 2023. We, we have a couple steps left, but I'm so excited to, to get it out there and just to empower people and let them know how incredible that they are, like how awesome their healing system is and how much they're capable of and ultimately giving people back their hopes, giving people back their desires, giving people back the things that they've given up due to poor advice. We can do so much better. And I think the, the whole world becomes a better place when people are given this permission and safety to do the things that they've always wanted to do. And that's the messaging in this book. It dives into neuroanatomy. It breaks it down in simple uh, topics. It doesn't go too far into neuroanatomy terms because they're very long and confusing. So we break it down into smaller terms, but then give people actionable steps to understand what creates their experience as a human. But then here's some steps that you can do to decrease your internal load to feel better and reclaim this identity as a lifelong athlete. That sounds awesome. That is something our field needs. That's something our patients and athletes need. So I'm super excited to see that. Um, I, how do we find out when that is released and published? Yeah, so on, on Instagram, my Instagram handle is hope not nope. And that's where, where we'll be letting people know that it's published and you can get it. We're gonna have physical copy, electronic copies and an audio book. Um, if people wanna send me a DM from this podcast and say true sports, the first three that send me that, I'll send them a free copy. I just sent you that. I'm, I'm gonna send you one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
I appreciate it. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a book like that, and, and really everything that you shared today is helping heal our medical system. Um, and that's something that I'm excited to learn about, hear about, and be a part of. Dr. Dylan Caswell, I appreciate everything you've shared. You've been awesome. Thank you so much. Can't wait to keep learning from you.